Welcome to the Scholar's Attic, an audio archive of our tour through world history, specifically the modern age, from the French Revolution to current events of 2021. Welcome to the Attic. This episode was originally recorded on March 9th, 2021, and as the liner notes indicate, uh, a couple of student presentations were dropped from this recording because either the student was out that day or the research threw some serious questions on the motivations and intent on the individual. Uh, so in one classic example, uh, there was a student who reported on an individual who appeared from top level research to be on the side of the allies, but a deeper look uh, turned up that they were in fact working for the Nazis. And so we could not in good conscience include that individual in a presentation on World War II heroes. So, uh, so just as an FYI, if you're listening to this, and, uh, and it becomes clear that a couple presentations are missing, uh, that is why, uh, for one of those two reasons. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is such a wonderful survey of the different heroes who stood in the gap, not an exhaustive list by any means, uh, but still a lot of fun to put together. So let's listen in. Okay. I've got the list of uh, quick reports that people are going to do on their World War II heroes. And again, like last time, I just want you to stand up, you know, face the class, project your voice well. Um, and rather than pull out a list of names of students and say who goes first, second, third, I just took the names of the people being reported on and I scrambled those. So Nancy Wake, who has Nancy Wake? Lily, <laughs> go ahead and start us off. Hello, guys. So my person was Nancy Wake. Um, she was born in New Zealand in 1912, but she grew up in Sydney, Australia, so that's fun. She ran away when she was only 16 and started working as a nurse, but then moved to Paris in 1932, where she worked as a journalist for the Hearst newspaper. In 1939, she married Henry Fiocha, and six months later, the Nazis invaded France, and she and her husband joined the resistance in 1940. Nancy and Henry focused on helping Allied servicemen and Jews get to safety in Spain. After a short imprisonment where she and her husband were separated, Nancy escaped across the Pyrenees and reached England in 1943, where she began working for the Special Operations Executive. She returned to France in 1944 to help organize for D-Day, specifically engaging in parachute drops of arms and equipment. After the liberation, she learned that her husband, Henry, had been killed by the Nazis, but she was decorated by France, Britain, and the USA for her bravery. She found it hard to adjust to post-war Europe, so she moved around a whole lot. Um, she went back to Australia, where she tried to enter politics twice, but failed. So then she moved back to England, and married again, then moved back to Australia and tried to enter politics again and failed again. So then she and her new husband moved back to England and her husband died in 1997. So she moved back to England where she lived until her death until 2011. She was awarded a whole bunch of awards, some with French names, so I'm not gonna try and pronounce them. Um, and they are all on display at the Second World War Gallery in the Australian War Memorial. 
So she was actually Australian to begin New Zealand, New Zealand to yeah. begin with. Okay. And she passed away only 10 years ago. Yeah, she was wow. 98. 98. Wow. Wow. Well, Anne Frank. Okay, PJ, tell us about Anne Frank. So, Anne was born on June 12th in 1929 and was of Jewish descent. Anne lived a pretty normal life until the age of 13 when the Nazis occupied the, the Netherlands. For her 13th birthday, she received a red and white plaid diary, which would end up being her safe space to write about all the insanity happening on the day she started writing in the book, she wrote, I hope I will be able to confide everything to you, as I have never been able to confide in anyone, and I hope you will be a great source of comfort and support. Anne and her family stayed in a hidden compartment behind a bookcase for a little over two years thanks to Meep guys. Without Meep, and and her family would have had no chance of surviving even half as long as they did. After 25 months of hiding and, write, and writing in her diary daily, her and her family were unfortunately captured by the Nazis and sent to a concentration camp called Auschwitz, where they died. Well, all except for one, which was Anne's dad, Otto. After Anne's death, her diary was given to Otto and was eventually published as The Diary of a Young Girl. Right. Yeah, the, um, the fact that they lasted as long as they did with the way the Nazi occupation and the way... Um, things were handled in Amsterdam is really quite astounding. So, and I'm looking forward to hear, hearing about the, the meat guys part of the story because that's the part that people don't usually talk about. So let's go on to Zoya, the, the girl with yeah, the long, unpronounceable last name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> okay, well, just Zoya K. Yes, I mean, it's, so what they said, it was like Cosmo Damianskaya. Ooh, okay, that sounds very impressive. <laughs> you round of applause. <laughs> Don't need anything else. She just knows how to yeah, pronounce it. her name. <laughs> okay, so my World War II quick report is on Zoya Kosmodemianskaya. Zoya was born on September 13th, 1923, and during World War II, Zoya and her brother joined the Labor Front and worked as wood turners in a factory. However, Zoya desired a more ambitious and dangerous job. So in October, she applied for a sabotage unit that worked behind enemy lines in Germany, telling her mom when she applied, don't worry, I'll either come back a hero or die a hero. And so when she got the job, she changed her name to Tanya and joined a partisan group that worked against the Nazis around a German-occupied village of Petrischova. Here, the Germans had thrown out the villagers, taken their food, and forced some of the villagers into labor camps. In retaliation, Zoya and her partisan group smoked the Germans out of the village huts and disrupted communications. Zoya herself cut all the lines for German field telephones and actually burned down a German headquarters. Unfortunately, while she was trying to burn down a stable that contained over 200 German cavalry horses, she was apprehended. And then she was tortured a dozen different ways by the Nazis. But she refused to give up any of the names of her fellow partisans. And she didn't even give up her own name. She only said her name was Tanya. Then on November 29, 1941, at 18 years old, she was forced to walk barefoot to a scaffold erected in the middle of the village square. Right before she was hanged, she turned to the commandant saying, you hang me now, but I am not alone. 
There are 200 million of us. You won't hang us all. I will be avenged. Soldiers, surrender before it is too late. Victory will be ours. She was declared a hero of the Soviet Union in February 16, 1942, and her last words continue to inspire civilians and soldiers during World War II. All right. That, that is quite the, uh, the act of defiance to be able to deliver that kind of speech while, while you are, you know, minutes away from being executed. Wow, that's, that's pretty powerful. All right, so Simo Haya, um, our Finnish uh, sniper, who sounds like he has a Japanese name, but... Yeah, I'd love to know how to pronounce his name, and it's like Haik. Haik? There's a lot of H's for some reason, I don't. Okay, well, and I don't speak Finnish, so... Yeah, I don't either. Alrighty. <laughs> anyway, so... I'll just come over here, so... Okay, that's fine. Because... Okay, so, Simo Haik, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, we're just going Simo, Mr. Simo. <laughs> So, Mr. Simo, the Finnish sniper, had at least 505 of sniper kills during the Winter War of 1939-1940. This was between Finland and the Soviet Union. He was born in around 1905 to 1906. They're not entirely sure what year they're born, but they know his exact birth date, which is December 17th. I don't know. So, he's around 33 to 34 years old when he entered the war. He only served a total of 98 days out of the 105-day war, and he was sadly ruined, wounded during the last week. It is even reported that in one day he killed over 25 men. Um, his reputation even reached the Russian front lines where he was nicknamed the White Death. He was also extremely lucky the Russians tried to use indirect fire, a mortar bombardment, <clears throat> and another sniper to try to kill him. And he came out of that with a torn coat and one scratch on his back. So, survived <laughs> all that. Wow. And he used a three-line rifle, or an M1, M1891, also known as a Mosin's rifle for the Russians. And that was a five-shot bolt-action inter-magazine-fed military rifle that was famous around 1891 to like 1901, so it's kind of the And during the last week, when he was wounded, um, that well I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it? Okay. Yeah. Well, he also had to get like 25 surgeries for his jaw, so. Wow, I was going to say, because that, that one photo that yeah. I showed y'all, like it, it, yeah, whoever put that bullet in him, they got close. They obviously mm -hmm. didn't take him out, but they they did some serious damage. Oh, wait. I do have a fun fact, though, if you want to hear it. Oh, yes. Fun fact. So, according to an American study, in World War One, you would need 7,000 bullets to kill one man with a sniper. So, to kill 505 men in World War One, you would need uh, 3,535,000 bullets. <laughs> and then, if you find the Vietnam War, you would need 25,000 bullets for one kill, or 13,530,000 thousand bullets for the five hundred five. so yeah, yeah. wow <laughs> like i said the granddaddy of all snipers he was amazing all right so czar boris the second who had czar boris all right i think you should all name your firstborn sons boris that's the only reason i chose him because i like the name I, well it is it's a good strong name yeah and it's 
Very. Go ahead. Uh, so Tsar Boris III was born January 30th, 1894 to King Ferdinand I of Bulgaria. And he took the throne on October 4th, 1918, after his daddy abdicated his position. He, in 1934, he helped in the coup to remove the agrarian prime minister Alexander Stambolyski from power. Uh, and then following this, there were two assassination attempts on him by communist and agrarian groups. Uh, both of them failed. He eventually lost most of his power due to the establishment of a military dictatorship by the authoritarian Vino Group. But he uh, organized a counter coup and regained most of the control over the country. And then that brings us to 1941, when he reluctantly allied himself with the Axis powers in World War II, after uh, powerful groups in Bulgaria kind of forced the country's politics in favor of Germany. And in 1943, the Nazis requested that Bulgaria send all of its Jewish residents to the German-occupied Poland. And there was outrage in the streets and civilians protested. And so Boris refused to send the, the 50,000 Jews to Poland. He did, however, sanction the extradition of 11,343 Jews from reoccupied territories in, of mm -hmm. Bulgaria. So some people viewed him as a hero for not sending any of the Bulgarian Jews, and then some viewed him as a villain for sending Jews from their reoccupied territories. He also refused to invade the Soviet Union or send Bulgarian troops to the Eastern Front, and that didn't make Hitler very happy at all. And he, he died August 28, 1943, to apparent heart failure, but there are a bunch of conspiracy theories saying that he may have been poisoned by Hitler, or that his death was a plot by the communists to destabilize the Bulgarian monarchy, but nobody really knows. So. Okay. Wow. So, so a hero, but a hero with a but, a, a clause that 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 eleven thousand three hundred ish yeah. Jews. So that's um, that's interesting. That's. And, and see, this is why I like doing these these sorts of reports is because I look things up and then I pull together, you know, information. And but then you know you start looking at additional sources of information, and then someone else will mention the, you know, twelve thousand ish Jews from the reoccupied, not from Bulgaria technically. So, but at the same time, you would have to have a pretty strong backbone to be an ally of Germany and then still, still tell Hitler no, that I'm not going to send you the Jews from my country. Uh, but that, that 12, 11 to 12,000, that sounds almost sort of like the proverbial here, throw him a bone so he'll leave this alone. Ugh, okay, that's icky. Um, Meep Guys. Who's got Meep? You do, yes! So Meep Guys was an Austrian-born heroine who was born February 15, 1909, and died January 11, 2010. She was nearly 100 years old. She was the last surviving member of the group of nine, five non-Jewish people that concealed eight Jews, including Anne Frank and her family, from the Nazis in the secret annex for two years. She was sent as a child from Vienna to Leiden in 1920 to to recuperate from malnutrition. 
She was adopted by her foster Dutch family. She started working as a typist in an embroidery and cleaning workshop. She then worked as a representative of Otto Frank's business. She answered questions about business by phone and mail. After the Franks went into hiding, she supplied them with daily provisions of supplies, including paper for Anne's diary. In addition, she brought the family library books. Her husband provided the family with forged food coupons and late to the Dutch resistance. Meep and her husband, Jan Gies, hid someone at their home as well. Kuna van der Horst, a 23-year-old student who went into hiding with the family after refusing to sign loyalty to the Nazis. After the eight people were found out, Meek later went to the secret annex to see if she could save some personal belongings. She found Anne's notebook and paper on the, on the floor. She kept them in her desk drawer, hoping to return them to Anne. After their arrest, Meek bravely attempted to free the people by walking to the headquarters of the Sitcher Heitstinst, and it's German, so I have no idea what that's pronounced. <laughs> Unfortunately, this didn't work. The couple took Otto into their home after he returned from the camps. Meep gave him the diary once it became clear that Anne was not going to return. He urged her to read it after it was published. Thankfully, she had refused to read it up until this point and said that if she had read it, she probably would have burned it due to the inflammatory material. Her and her husband received several awards, including the 1972 Yad Bassem, Israel's Holocaust Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Authority. Meep's memoir, Anne Frank Remembered was the basis for the TV movie The Attic, The Hiding of Anne Frank, and many subsequent TV adaptations and documentaries. Okay. Yes. All right. So, Chinune Sugahara, our one Japanese entry on the heroes list. up 
until his train pulled away from the station. Sugihara defied his government and issued pieces to the Jews. In doing so, he stood on the old samurai proverb, even a hunter cannot kill a bird, which applies to him directly. That's about all we Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Well, and that's interesting, too, that, um, you know, Japan, uh, which is so typically like Buddhist, Taoist, you know, all of those, those Eastern religions, and that he converted to Eastern Greek orth- Orthodox. So he basically, he became a Christian. Um, in, uh, his particular um, brand of worship would have been aligned with the Eastern Orthodox Church. But that that explains a lot why you would have a Japanese man in a Lithuanian embassy writing visas for Jews who are trying to make it to safety. Um, so no, no accidents in God's paradigm. Um, Helena Vagliana. I don't really know how to pronounce her last name. Well, just call her Helen. Oh, yeah. you know how to pronounce her last name? Vagliano. Vagliano. Okay, well then, yep, there we go. I'm just going to call her Helen. <laughs> Helen Vagliano was the daughter of a Greek ship owner. She was educated in England and went to live in Connes? Oh, oh Con, and, in France, C-A-N-N-E-S, Con, yeah. it's pronounced Con. Okay. The okay. family was forced to remain there when the German armies invaded France. Helen became the leader of the Maquis, the French resistance, at Caen and worked at at the AIDS prisoner's center in the town where a colleague betrayed her to the Gestapo. She was interrogated, tortured, and killed by the Gestapo, and her body was recovered and given a public funeral on October 3rd, 1944. She has since been accorded the title of Heroine of France and was awarded a posthumous Legion of Honor. Okay. Those, um, quite a few of those uh, posthumous um, or posthumous uh, awards given after the war. So, so many of them died before they could be rescued or liberated. Okay, Anna Zakzeruska. I do not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Did I? Okay, yes, that was Lucy. Yay. Yeah, Anna Z. So we have Zoya K and Anna Z. Oh, okay. So she was one of the harder ones. Well, well, give us, give us what you got. And I don't know if it's Anna or Anna. So probably Anna. That's the European pronunciation. Like Anna Zukshurska was born December twenty fourth, nineteen twenty five, to Irina and Han Zukshurska. Anna was a courier and first aider in the Polish underground with the code name of Hanka Biala, which means White Hannah. At age 18, she began her training at the end of June and completed in July of 1944 in the Wyszku Forest and was assigned to the 1st Platoon, 2nd Company of Battalion Zoszka. Battalion Zoszka was established by leaders of the Polish scouting movement, code name being Sharda Shadeg, a setter of resistance to the Nazi occupation. On August 1st, 1944, the Warsaw Uprising began and 
Anna's battalion was engaged in combat with the German force forces in the Wawa district of Warsaw. Battalion Zoschka seized a school building and took the defending Germans prisoner on August 8, 1944. The battalion held the school for three days while the German ca Germans counterattacked. The medical orderlies of the battalion, one being Anna, kept a lookout for the enemy, distributed orders, ammunition, and meals, and cared for the cared for the wounded. But on August 11, 1944, the battalion was forced to evacuate the building, including Anna and other nurses. During the evacuation, the battalion was forced to cross open ground. While retreating under heavy fire, Anna was struck by bullets from a machine gun and killed. A soldier of the Army of Krajowa was with her when she died and reported the tragedy to Anna's parents himself. Stanislaw Sherdusky, the soldier with Anna at the time of her death, described her as heroic when he told of her death. Anna was posthumously post 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 mm -hmm. yeah. awarded the Kashish Balwinski, the Cross of Valor. Okay, the Cross of Valor. All right, very good, thank y'all. So about four more here, Meskwaki Code Talkers. Okay. Right, so there wasn't a whole lot of these guys. Mm -hmm. Like I found three reliable articles, maybe to okay. discuss them. So um, there were in total 27 members of the Meskwaki tribe who uh, joined the US military. Only about seven of them ended up being uh, code breakers or code talkers mm. um, and this happened because you know kind of like the other Indian tribes just kind of figured out hey these guys can talk in a language that no one else can understand and that's an unbreakable code get them on a radio teach them how to work it and get them communicating up and down the lines so that's how they got their start um, they were actually the first tribe to be trained as code talkers <coughs> before any of the other tribes okay. so um, they kind of started the whole idea. Uh, they are credited with saving hundreds of lives, if not thousands, with the codes they sent back and forth uh, through the fact that, as I've stated, it was able to be kept out of Axis hands. Uh, you know, what they were saying was complete gibberish to the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese. They didn't know. Um, they never really received recognition for their work. It's just kind of how it happened back then. Um, and uh, up until, until 2002, uh, when all Indian tribes who had an impact on World War II were finally recognized for uh, the service that they did to their country. And that's about all I have on the most right. code, code, code Well, and, and the, the story of the Navajo code talkers um, is so well documented, it, it tends to eclipse their uh, story. Also, the Meskwaki tribe um, is a much smaller remnant tribe than the Navajo. So uh, the, the first-hand information we would have on that would probably require going to the tribe itself and then, you know, learning from their, you know, their story traditions and, and what have you. But, you know, it, it's, that's sort of at the root of why I, I gave y'all this particular assignment and why this particular list is because you know, we've got the Russians, we've got the Dutch, we've got, you know, the Japanese and Finnish and Native Americans and Germans. 
um, you know, Polish people. Like, there's this wide variety. And, of course, we know of other heroes. There are other heroes who are much more visible and well-documented. But, like, these were the people who stood in the gap and, you know, are, are just now starting to be recognized or we don't know a whole lot about them or what's about them is not necessarily in English. And um, anyway, it's, uh, it, it's, it's all part of, of God's economy that there's, there's no random details. It's like, um, uh, what was his name? Sugahara, uh, a Japanese diplomat who becomes a Christian and then is placed where he can help save several thousands of Jews. You know, the Meskwakis, uh, you know, a, a Greek heiress, you know, a, a, a runaway from New Zealand, like, you know, all of these people stepped up into the gap in the right moment. Um, Irina Sendler, who had, okay. Thanks. So I got Irina Sendler. Irina Sendler was 29 years old when the start of the World War II happened. She was a social worker employed by the Welfare Department of the Warsaw Municipality. Irina devised a plan, and it was extremely dangerous, and it could end up in her death. Irina would sneak into the ghetto and help the dying and infected people in sneaking some out. On October 20th, Miss Nedley was arrested, but she stashed away incriminating evidence and burned large sums of money so that she had no evidence that she was helping with the organization. She was sentenced to death and was sent to Polyot Prison. Underground activists bribed the officials to release her. And after her release, Sendler continued underground work of still helping to smuggle and help children in orphanage and Jewish children. The activities caused great danger to her and her life, so she had to go into hiding, meaning that she could not visit her mother's funeral when she died. Oh. Yes. Do you have a date of death on her? Because she lived a, a long she time. She did. I think it was somewhere... I don't remember. I knew I should have like written it down because I should have written it down, um, and I, that was like the last detail. And then we had to leave. Um, <laughs> but I, I yeah, because like like she she lived past the she year two thousand. Like she time. she's another one who like she's she's passed away now, but it's been like within the, within the last ten years, if I understand. And in fact, I think that's why. Um, she's one of the names that started circulating on the internet about ten years ago because it's one of those that. Uh, stories that when the person dies and then her obituary gets published and everybody's like, what? Why didn't we know about this person sooner? And then, you know, you, you get that flash in the pan and, and it, it gains some visibility online. But um, such, such a neat, you know, and, and again, you know, we, we've got the, the king of Bulgaria, the, you know, the Finnish sniper, and then the plumber. You know, <laughs> it, it's like it, it takes, you know, everyone. In the grand scheme of things, Orly Wald, the Angel of Auschwitz. Yeah. All right, so I also couldn't find a bunch of stuff on her. It was like one website, and everything else that I found pointed back to that website. So. Okay, well, tell us what you got. All right, so she was born on July 1st, in 1914, and she was originally named Aurelia Torgo. I'm not sure when she her first name was changed to Orly, but that happened at some point. At age 22, she was married to Fritz Reichardt. So her name, last name changed to Reichardt, as well as her first name changed to Orly at that point. And, but however, three, la three years later, they got divorced because of she was uh, convicted of high treason. 
and she was committed to high treason because she worked for a communist youth organization of Germany, but when the National Socialists took over, her work became illegal, and so she was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. She served her time, but after she finished serving her time, she got sent to a woman concentration camp of Ravensburg. But later she got transferred again to Auschwitz, where she was assigned to the prisoner hospital. And she selflessly served the other inmates and nursed a Jewish doctor back to health, which together they ended up saving many of the lives of the prisoners where they were stationed at. And they diagnosed many with typhus and helped save almost all of them. So that's how she earned the title of Angel of Auschwitz. But she was sent to one last concentration camp where she was sent to be killed. But thankfully she escaped and sort of lived the rest of her life in peace where she got married to Edward Wald. That's where her last name I changed for the last time. But the time spent she the time she spent in the camp just kind of mentally broke her, and so she ended up in a psychiatric, psych, what's that, psych, psych, psychiatric, psychiatric yes. institution where she died at the age of 48 on January 1st, 1962. Oh, okay, yeah, that is young, and yeah. died in a psychiatric ward, that's depressing. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, let's um, wrap it up with Admiral Wilhelm Canaris. Leo, I think that's you. Wilhelm Canaris was an admiral and the head of German military intelligence during the 1930s and during World War II. During, he was also in World War I um, and was part of the military triumvirate, which helped sentence the deaths of German officers who killed the German communist Rosa Luxemburg. He, uh, however, is rumored to have helped one of the officers escape and uh, avoid being executed. He supported the Nazi party originally, but then turned to the Allies because he believed that the Nazis would destroy traditional conserv conservative values and that the Nazi party's foreign ambitions were dangerous to Germany. So he helped shield anti-Hitler military conspiracists who were plotting to assassinate Hitler. He was arrested under suspicion of conspiring against the government and was eventually killed at Flossenburg concentration camp in Bavaria after an unsuccessful assassination attempt by the officers he was shielding. Okay, so another one of uh, those Germans that started off, um, you know, following uh, the the Nazi ideal, and then realized that that was not that that was that they were in the wrong camp. It's always a tough thing to do when uh, you realize that um, that you're one of those in the wrong. Um, okay, so that gives us our. Um, our people, we've got a, a couple more that uh, will be reported on later. Uh, so let's do this. We are close enough to our usual break time that why don't we take a break here and be back at a quarter till. That gives you about eight minutes. Yes. Um, I have another one for you if you want me to go ahead.
oh, okay. Well, you never signed up for one, so I didn't know. Because I had to leave halfway through the day, and I completely forgot to text you about it. Oh, okay. But I did write about. Um, well, if you got somebody, let's let's hear about it. So I decided to write about Oscar Schindler. And okay. he's the one behind Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler was born April 28, 1908, in Svetavi, Moravia, and he was an ethnic German and Catholic. He stayed in Svetavi during the interwar period and held Czech citizenship after the establishment of the Czechoslovak Republic. In 1928, Oscar married Emily Pelzel while working on his father's farm machinery business. Later in his life, Oscar joined the Nazi party. During World War II, Oscar would soon rescue more than 1,000 Jewish people from the deportation to Auschwitz. After the SS redesignated Plassau as a concentration camp in August 1943, Schindler persuaded the SS to convert Amalia into a subcamp of Plassau. In addition to the approximate 1,000 Jewish people forced to register as factory workers, Schindler permitted 450 Jews working in other nearby factories to live at Amalia as well. This saved them from the systematic brutality and arbitrary murder that was part of daily life in Plassau. Schindler did not act here without risk or cost. His protection of his Jewish workers and some of his shady business dealings led to the SS and police authorities to suspect him of corruption and giving unauthorized aid to Jewish people. At this point, the German SS and police officials arrested him three times, each time unable to charge him with anything at all. <laughs> nice. So, and, um, and like we talked about the other day, he, along with several of these other people you've reported on, are listed in the... Um, was it the, the, the Garden of Righteous Gentiles or the Hall of Righteous Gentiles um, at uh, Vad Yashem uh, and, and with, with good reason? Because uh, if, if they had to be imprisoned anyway, for them to live at the factory um, was a much, much better situation than being in the actual concentration camp. So, okay. Well then, let's do this. Let's take that break and let's let's be back at ten till. Let's do that, okay? All right. Thank you, Macho Macho. We'll do this again in a few minutes. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.